Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 32, The Repeating of Births. In 1990 BCE, southern Egypt was in the midst of a localized civil war. Amenemhat, former vizier for King Nebtawire Montuhotep IV, had claimed the right to succeed when his former master died without heir. Having served the king admirably throughout his career, and led the expedition to quarry a sacred sarcophagus for Nebtawire, Amenemhat was the strongest claimant to a throne in danger of collapse. Of course, apart from this political power, the official had little real claim to the throne. He had been born of non-royal parents. His father was a priest named Senwazret, his mother a woman of Elephantine named Nefret, he had risen to power in the administration of the 11th dynasty, but was not himself a member of it. He was not married to a lady of the royal family, and he took power essentially on the basis of experience, rank, and the support of an army. Amenemhat had acted as vizier for the former king, and when the ill-fated Nebtawire passed to the west, Amenemhat was in a fortuitous position. On the basis of contemporary accounts from a soldier named Chehemau, it seems that Amenemhat was residing in the north when the news came that Nebtawire was dead. Either by prior arrangement with the former king, or on the spur of the moment, Amenemhat declared himself the rightful successor. Of course, this was easier said than accomplished. At the same time as he declared for himself, two southern officials rose up in competition. In Thebes, a local ruler named Entef claimed power for himself, while in Upper Nubia, a man named Segur Seni also broke away. Acting decisively, Amenemhat marshaled his troops, including Chehemau, and marched southward. The Thebans assembled against him, but Chehemau and his compatriots defeated them rapidly. Presumably the contender Intef was subjugated at this point. Amenemhat then advanced in victory into the great southern city, claiming authority over the spiritual and effective heartland of the 11th dynasty. Now, firmly established as ruler of Egypt itself, Amenemhat took the fight to Segoseni in Nubia, leading a maritime expedition upriver into northern Nubia. This expedition was recorded by an official named Kunum Hotep, meaning Kunum is satisfied. An auspicious name for the expedition, for the ram-headed god Kunum, who had fashioned humanity from clay during the early moments of creation, was thought to live near the headwaters of the Nile, deep in southern Nubia. Kunum Hotep served as the king's seal-bearer, and as a Semerwati, or sole companion, and august title which had existed since the early dynasties. Kunum Hotep's service in this campaign was recorded in his tomb at Beni Hassan, a prominent burial site of the First Intermediate Period and Middle Kingdom. Here, historians and tourists can observe several lineages of elite families preserved in elaborately decorated tombs. Biographies and scenes of idyllic life are among some of the more beautiful in this era. We will explore this site over the coming episodes. In commemoration of his service, Kunum Hotep recorded his time in this campaign, 
and the rewards which he received afterwards. Quote, I went down with his majesty, Amenemhat, in twenty ships of cedar, which he led coming to Nubia. He, the king, expelled the enemy from the two lands. Nubians and Asiatics fell, and he seized the lowland and the highlands. Then his majesty appointed me as count of Menat Khufu. My administration was excellent in the heart of his majesty, and I benefited my people. His majesty caused to be done for me all that I commanded. End quote. Essentially, a brief campaign into Nubia reasserted Egyptian power and defeated the rebellious Segoseni. From the tone of Khnumhotep's account, the campaign sounds more like a mopping-up exercise than a war. Perhaps it was. After all, with the command of Egypt's full military forces at his back, and only the nascent power of Nubian soldiers against him, Amenemhat was simply better equipped in men and resources. Combine this with the morale boost of recent victories in Upper Egypt, and his army was very much near the top of its game. For his service in the campaign, Khnumhotep was rewarded lavishly after the army's return. Amenemhat posted Khnumhotep to the lucrative position of Count, or Khatia, foremost of the arm, at Menat Khufu. Menat Khufu, as you may have guessed, was a community and institution dating back to the 4th dynasty. The name Menat translates roughly to nurse or wet nurse. Of course, an estate could not literally be a wet nurse. Historians today interpret such institutions as agricultural estates dedicated to the sustenance and upkeep of the royal children. In other words, when Khufu was born, an estate was commanded to deliver its produce to the palace for the child's use. These Menat domains crop up intermittently throughout Egyptian history, and some appear to have been more prominent than others. Menat Khufu itself was important because it served as a provincial capital, the seat of the governors who oversaw the 16th administrative district, or Nome, of Upper Egypt. Khnumhotep's appointment as Khatia of the region was an enormously prestigious promotion, and a vote of confidence from his new reigning king. Subsequently, he was able to establish a power base here, which passed to no less than three generations of his descendants, each generation acting as the Khatia overseer of the region. We will meet these descendants in future episodes, when we come to the reign of Amenemhat's successors. The promotion was not merely a vote of confidence. For Amenemhat, who ruled from Thebes during the first years of his reign, placing loyal retainers in key administrative positions was the key to an effective rule. Like Montuhotep II before him, Amenemhat recognized the potential for members of the elite to threaten royal power if their power was not strictly tied to the crown. A full generation had elapsed since Montuhotep II's reforms began, and with the House of Entef now a political memory, Amenemhat began his own reorganization of the kingdom. Far less is known about this process than that of Montuhotep, except that Amenemhat repeated the pattern 
of installing courtiers and high-ranking members of his entourage into administrative positions. To enhance the image of a general rebirth, the king took on a new Horus name, Wehemu Mesut. Translated, this name means the one who repeats births, casting the king as a new founding father of the two lands. With the renaissance in full swing, both in his administrative program and public representation, Amenemhat soon turned his attention toward the all-important task of any reformer, legitimization. With no blood claim to the throne, and having been, at best, the appointed successor of a king doomed to obscurity, Amenemhat paid careful attention to casting his reign in the most favourable light possible. Cunningly, the king hit upon the idea of using his own non-royal heritage as an advantage, in a rhetorical twist worthy of the very best political propagandists. Composing, or at least commissioning, a story that would place his reign within an appropriate historical context, Amenemhat put himself within the ranks of such luminaries as King Sneferu, whose legacy remained potent more than 500 years after his death. The text I am referring to is known as the Prophecy of Neferti, an elaborate and detailed composition giving a mythological basis for Amenemhat's succession, while handily explaining away his non-royal heritage. The text I'm about to read you is lengthy, and doesn't have many good points at which to break up the narrative. If you don't have a few minutes spare, I suggest pausing here until you get the chance to listen to it in full. Another note to bear in mind as we go. Nefertiti speaks of the future as though it is the present. For the composer, of course, it is the present or recent past. Therefore, when the speaker in the text refers to things that are, what he means is things that will be. But anyway, let's recount the tale. Quote, it so happened that when the late King Sneferu was effective king in this entire land, his majesty said to the seal-bearer who was at his side, Go and fetch for me the council of the residents. They were ushered into him immediately, and they prostrated himself before his majesty. And his majesty said to them, Comrades, see, I have caused you to be summoned in order that you may seek out for me a son of yours who is wise, a brother of yours who is trustworthy, or a friend of yours who has achieved some noble deed, someone who shall say some fine words to me, choice phrases at the hearing of which my majesty will be entertained. They prostrated themselves again before his majesty, saying, there is a great lector priest of Bastet, O Sovereign, whose name is Neferti. He is a commoner, valiant with his arm. He is a scribe, skilled with his fingers. And he is a wealthy man, who has more possessions than any of his equals. Let him be permitted to see your majesty. His majesty said, Go and fetch him to me. And he, meaning Neferti, was ushered in immediately. Nefertiti prostrated himself before his majesty, and his majesty said, Come, Nefertiti, my friend, say some fine words to me, choice phrases at hearing which 
My Majesty will be entertained. The lector priest Nefferty said, Shall I speak of what has happened, or of what shall happen, my lord? His Majesty said, Of what shall happen? Today has come into being, and one has already passed it by. Nefferty brooded over what should happen in the land, and considered the condition of the East, when the Asiatics raid and terrorized those at harvest, taking away their work teams instead of ploughing. He said, Stir yourself, my heart. Weep for this land in which you began, for he who is silent is a wrongdoer. I will speak of what is before my eyes. I will never foretell what is not to come. The river of Egypt is dry, and men cross the water on foot. Men will seek water for ships in order to navigate it, for their course has become the river bank, and the bank serves for water. The south wind will oppose the north wind. All good things have passed away, the land being cast away. Enemies have come into being in the east, Asiatics have come down into Egypt, and no guard will hear. The fortress will be entered, and sleep will be banished from my eyes, so that I spend the night wakeful. This land is in commotion, and no one knows what the result may be, for it is hidden from speech, sight, and hearing because of dullness, silence coming to the fore. Men will take weapons of war, and the land will live in confusion. Men will make arrows of bronze, men will beg for the bread of blood. Men will laugh aloud at pain. No one will weep at death. None will lie down hungry at death. And a man's heart will think of himself alone. None will dress hair today. Hearts are entirely astray because of it. And a man sits quiet, turning his back, while one man kills another. I show you the land in calamity. For what had never happened has now happened. The land is diminished, though its controllers are many. He who was rich in servants is despoiled, and corn is trifling, even though the corn measure is great, and it is measured to overflowing. Ray separates himself from men. He shines that the hour may be told, but no one can discern his shadow. No one is dazzled when he is seen. I show you the land in calamity. End quote. In this lengthy passage... Nefertiti lays out the Egyptian version of chaos and civil war. The elite are overthrown, the poor stand wealthy and powerful. Gods turn away from the kingdom, and although they continue to fulfill their essential functions, they pay little attention to humanity. The temples cease to be effective, and the gods find themselves homeless. It is a narrative I have been drawing on behind the scenes for many of the podcast's episodes so far. The Egyptian conception of chaos and its threat to order was frequently expressed in terms of social upheaval, particularly regarding the relationship between the elites and the poor, and the proper sustenance of the temple institutions. Of course, from what we know about the first intermediate period, Nefertiti's description is not exactly accurate in the details. The first intermediate period bore witness to a thriving elite culture, one which ultimately produced the families that re-established the divine monarchy. The poorest of Egypt's population probably found themselves more at the mercy of the powerful than ever before. 
as droughts and warfare spread through the country intermittently, restricted resources made the poor dependent on local rulers to move food from other, more prosperous areas. Ang Tifi had prided himself on his ability to redistribute food in this way, and the rulers of Asyut had loudly proclaimed their ability to revive and expand their community's economic fortunes. But Amenemhat was not interested in such facts, or reminding his audience that Egypt's elite families had positively thrived in the absence of a countrywide authority. He wanted elite Egyptians to perceive him as a saviour, a reviver of fortunes amidst a time of social upheaval. Nefertiti acts as Amenemhat's mouthpiece, detailing the so-called turmoil and overturning of an ancient social order. It is, of course, an exercise in scene-setting, a dramatic reminder of the myriad reasons why Egypt needs the new king, despite his non-royal origins. Without ever copying the instructions for Merikare, which presented ideas and concepts somewhat akin to a political manifesto, the prophecy of Nefertiti still manages to present the fundamental rationale for Amenemhat's rule and the justification for his violent acquisition of the throne. Still, it is mostly something of a fantasy, designed to provide a dramatic backdrop for recent events, rather than an accurate history of the first intermediate period. But then, finally, a few lines from the end, the author writing for Amenemhat gets to the crux of the issue. Quote, A king of the south will come, Ameni by name, the son of a woman of Chatiland, Lower Nubia and the region of Elephantine. He will assume the white crown, and he will wear the red crown. He will join these together into the double crown. He will propitiate the two lords with what they desire. The land will be enclosed in his grasp, the oars swinging, the people of his reign will rejoice. The well-born man will make his name forever and ever. Those who have fallen into evil and have planned rebellion have stultified their utterances through fear of him. The Asiatics will fall at the dread of him. The Libyans will fall at his flaming, the rebels at his wrath, the disaffected at the awe of him, while the Uraeus, which is on his forehead, will pacify the rebellious. Right will come to its place again and wrong will be thrust outside. Joyful will be he who will see it, and he who will serve the king. The learned man shall pour a libation to me when he sees what I have said. It has come happily to an end. end quote. The victory of Amenemhat was legitimized as a triumph of order over chaos. Throwing aside concerns of succession rights, the prophecy of Nefertiti acts as the quintessential narrative justifying the existence of a non-royal king. Without the power and authority of Horus, the land descends into chaos, being invaded by Asiatics and Libyans. It is only through the power and strength of a provincial, born of a priest and a woman of Elephantine, that the land is restored to good order. The prophecy of Nefertiti is a victory text, to be sure. It is also one of two literary insights into the attitudes of this particular ruler. I don't need to tell you how rare such an occasion is. 
Few texts so perfectly encapsulate the Egyptian perception of order and chaos as the Nefertiti prophecy. The fact that it functions as political propaganda only adds to the value of this text in a historical context. If we take the text at face value for just a moment, one could certainly observe certain characteristics of Amenemhat's general ruling character. Nefertiti remarks that those who have fallen into evil have stultified their utterances through fear of him. Essentially, he's saying that political opponents and those who would do wrong have been cowed into submission. It is a brief but effective remark on the power of the king to instill fear in those he has defeated. It suggests the passive suppression of dissent and the encouragement of obedience in the face of overwhelming power. If this seems distasteful, simply keep in mind that for these ancient humans, the power of speech went beyond mere dissent and into the supernatural realm. Upholding ma'at required good thought, good action, and good words. To upend any of those three behaviours risked damaging the cosmic order. Thus, Amenemhat's duty as protector of ma'at was to ensure that dissent and speech were suppressed, ideally through fear rather than force. We may not agree with the sentiment, but for the Egyptians of this time, the underlying logic was sound, and necessary to preserve Ray's creation. Equally important, and less oppressive to modern sensibilities, was the careful placing of the story within the reign of Seneferu. If we remember back to episode 5, King Seneferu of Dynasty 4, whose name translates to the one who makes beautiful things, gained a reputation in Egyptian memory as being the equivalent of a King David figure, wise, benevolent, and responsible both for the first true pyramid and many long-lasting administrative reforms, Sneferu became one of the archetypal good rulers of Egyptian heritage. Affiliating himself with this king could only do wonders for Amenemhat's claims to legitimacy. It was a skillful form of propaganda, enhancing his status as a modern heir to Sneferu, and a new manifestation of the 4th dynasty's ancient splendour. So, Amenemhat stood victorious over the two lands, and through the prophecy of Nefertiti, successfully sealed his legitimacy in writing. What next for the new king? Well, hoping to avoid the fate of his predecessor Nebtawi Re, whose tomb at Deir al-Bahari was still incomplete when he died, Amenemhat put into motion new plans for his royal tomb. In a carefully crafted act of architectural revival, Amenemhat abandoned the rock temple tombs favoured by the late 11th dynasty rulers. He moved his burial away from Thebes even, back to the northern regions of Egypt. At a site known today as Al-Lisht, he laid the plans for his new tomb. 
but it was not really a new tomb per se. For Amenemhat made the remarkable decision to revive that most splendid and august of the royal tombs. It was time for Egypt to once more invest in the construction of pyramids. Thus, the 12th dynasty began, in some respects, much like the 4th. And Amenemhat I revived Egypt's fortunes with a new ruling legacy, one drawing on its ancient predecessors in a way that will shape culture and society for the next 200 years.